0: And so I hadn't figured out how to turn that into something bigger. I mean, there's sixty to seventy million households in the US every year who give to charity. It's almost half a trillion a year. In the US. That's over two percent of GDP. I mean, I there are huge sector agriculture is about one percent of GDP. I mean, like it's amazing how big giving is and yet there's no reinvention here, no great technology solution.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to share it and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Or whatever you get your show, so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with the great Adam Nash, co founder and CEO of Daffy, a not for profit fintech community built around a new modern platform to teach, help, and encourage charitable giving. In fact, you can visit Fintech Leaders today and sign up to Daffy. To get an extra $25 for charity when you join the site. Thanks, Adam. Adam also sits on the board of Acorns and in the past was CEO of Wealthfront and held leadership roles at Dropbox, LinkedIn, eBay, and Apple. In this episode, we discuss Adam's journey at Silicon Valley and what it was like to work with Steve Jobs back when they were at Next and Apple lessons from the role of the CEO and why it's the only role that truly understands how a company's pieces are going to fit together, building the first fully functioning donor advice fund in the App Store and how Daffy is helping people give more to charity, why Adam remains excited and bullish on consumer fintech businesses, the importance of building a great team, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great episode with Adam Nash from Daffy. Adam, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Thanks for joining all the way from Silicon Valley. Is that right? That's right. Glad to be here. Very happy to be hosting you. We've been talking about it for a while, so I'm glad it's finally here. Adam, you have a quite an interesting story. you you know, as we were just chatting, you grew up in Silicon Valley, so you know you've done a lot prior to Daffy. So maybe tell us about your experience, and then, you know, at some point, you did become a CEO, so maybe you can tell us about your experience, and what did you had to unlearn once you became a CEO?: Yeah, well, for better or for worse. My career has been, you know, almost
0: 25 years here in Silicon Valley. I did grow up here. My parents are still here, brothers, sister, chose to raise my family here. So I don't know if it's that exciting a story. It felt very normal to me, although I realize that Silicon Valley is an unusual place. But um, no, my parents are both doctors, grew up in the area. I ended up going to Stanford for our uh, bachelor's and master's in computer science um, this is back in the nineties. Human computer interaction was new, design-centered thinking was new, kind of came out with a really kind of optimistic ideal of using software to change industries and products and help bring solutions to people who didn't have them before. Um, thought I was joining a startup called Next, but it turned out Apple acquired them in the midst of my interview cycle, signed so it up at Apple on a team called Rhapsody, which eventually became Mac OS X and iOS and all the great stuff that we use today. But the big company thing wasn't for me at the time. I jumped to a startup pretty quickly that was focused on electronic software distribution. We went public in 99. For those of you listening, everyone actually went public in 1999. It's just the thing to do. But I was really unhappy with what I saw going on in the Valley at that time. The quality of the companies being built, the quality of the businesses. I ended up going to business school um, at Harvard for a couple of years, was the class of 2001. Saw the peak of the bubble and then it crashed, which for me was in a weird way validating about kind of some of the noise and some of the nonsense that was going on in the late nineties in terms of building new companies and businesses. I was in venture capital for a couple of years when the bubble burst, that was exciting, but it wasn't right for me. I ended up going back into operations, uh, joined in a product role at eBay. eBay was one of the few companies at the time really doing well. Some amazing people was there for four years, built new products, businesses, really learned a lot about web product management, data-driven product, and spent a lot of time there. A lot of my patent work was there in, in search jumped to a startup called LinkedIn. I had met Reid Hoffman. We had a long talk about product and Web 2.0. I ended up there for four and a half years running core product all the way through the IPO, uh, which is exciting. And then I jumped again to venture capital, spent uh, about a year and a half at Greylock Partners as an EIR, an executive in residence, discovered this new category. It didn't have a name, but there were all these great founders and companies going after building financial services and applications, ended up calling it FinTech and met a lot of great founders at the time. And then one, you know, of course, Andy Ratcliffe met at Wealthfront, ended up joining, becoming CEO there for four years um, through the real early boom of fintech and when people were very skeptical about building businesses and software to help people with financial problems. Left in the end of 2016, joined the board of Acorns, which I've been on for six years. I teach a class now at Stanford, personal finance for engineers, which has become very popular, six years running. And um, I'm an active angel investor for the last decade. So I've invested about 120 different companies. And then obviously my pride and joy right now is Daffy, uh, which is my new startup that I founded with my co-founder Alejandro Crosa about two, a little over two years ago. Um, and we're trying to change the way that people give the same way that previous applications change the way people save and invest. So that was started by Steve Jobs, right? That's right. I was 22 years old coming out of college. Proud to say that I was in meetings with him and. Definitely learned some good things about how he steered the ship, both the Next and then at Apple. But I didn't really work at Next, although I did get to spend a few months in the Next buildings while they were migrating to Apple. But no, you know, it was really interesting to see the way Steve behaved. I mean, a lot of people have commented on Steve's leadership and the differences when he was young doing Apple the first time and then when he came back. I think that the Next team had a lot to do with that journey of him learning different, you know, the ups and downs, who stuck with him, who didn't, what worked, what didn't what was durable, what wasn't. I'm probably in the same group of people who saw a very different leader in Steve when he came back to Apple, mainly because he trusted so many of the folks that he worked with at Next. It was a different, there's a different level of delegation and trust in the management team, I think, than what I understand was at the early Apple. Of course, I was, you know, single digits <laughs> when,
1: when the early Apple was happening, but at least that's my understanding. So speaking of leadership, you got to work with Andy Ratcliffe, huge fan, by the way, of Andy. And that was your CEO role at Wealthfront. You know, tell us, what, what did you learn in the office of the CEO? You know, like, where are some of those, those things that you did not expect that you have to encounter, you have to tackle as a CEO of a fast-growing company?
0: Well, I think that, I don't know about things I didn't expect. I think that in general, as you rise up the product role turns out to have a lot of good analogs to the CEO role, not perfect. And product management is done in different ways at different companies, different types of businesses. But you know, in software on the web, the product role is one of the few roles where you largely own the outcome, right? You have responsibility for how successful the product is. Uh, and there's really no excuses about the reasons why it's not successful, right? It could have been an engineering challenge. It could have been a design flaw. It could have been strategy. It could have been pricing, marketing, etc. But at the end of the day, people, what you learn in the product role is that people, you know, fut- the future paints the past, so to speak. And so in the future, people don't remember and don't care about all the issues, all the problems, all the work, all the sagas that go into building and designing and launching products and features. They just care about. You know, in the end, how it went, thats surprising. I mean, people in the field care. You know, we care. We care about, you know, what we learned, the lessons, what we'll do again better next time. We're always trying to improve. But for the most part, the market doesn't care. And so I think the CEO role, particularly the CEO of a startup, you're constantly diving between the present where you're fixing problems every day. You're trying to break through. You, you end up being really the arbiter of what types of risks you're willing to take as a startup. But I think that in the end, you know, the CEO has the fundamental leadership role for the company. It's that bridge of all the stakeholders. The CEO really is the only one who has the responsibility to to keep in their head how all the pieces are going to fit together and long term result in building, you know, a company, a business, a product that the entire team, all the stakeholders can be proud of. So I don't know if it's surprising when you're in the CEO role, but often for folks who've had functional roles, you know, I came up through engineering and then product and then some design. You know, the CEO it really does help when you start thinking that the company itself is what you're trying to build. Right. And realizing that all those other things are just a piece of that puzzle. It lets you appreciate all the functions and what they do and how they come together. But it can be really surprising how you end up spending your time. As a startup CEO, you cover a lot of gaps. But for me personally, at Wellfront. My biggest takeaway was how many problems are really just people problems, right? How many, and I talk about business strategy, execution, et cetera. You can try and solve the problem yourself. That's not very scalable. You can think about who can I talk to? Who can I learn from? Who can I hire who will dramatically decrease the risk of this being successful or dramatically increase the size of the opportunity we go after? And so a lot of my early success and a lot of what I learned at Wealthfront was just a reinforcement of how important people are in the end. You know, I've always said as a manager, back in the early days, it was you know, that software was a team sport, but it's very, very clear as CEO how true that is. And
1: Wealthfront, of course, it's a consumer business. And today, just B2C fintech has fallen a little bit out of favor. I don't think that's a secret to anyone, you know. What do you think is the biggest challenge for consumer businesses, particularly in fintech today?
0: Yeah, it's always kind of funny to me to watch the kind of cycles in software. It's so predictable. It really feels like every three to five years, we decide that consumer is hard. Consumers are irrational. How do you reach them? How do you get a message across? Isn't it great to build a sales funnel and just operate and sell to businesses? And then we spend three to five years on B2B businesses and everyone discovers like, wait, this is actually really hard. How do you compete? The incumbents have all this advantage, the pricing, you know, the sticky. So the truth is they're both really hard for different reasons. And you can build really big, successful businesses in both. And the truth is, if you look at the dollars involved, they're roughly equivalent in the aggregate. So it's not surprising that the industry pogo sticks between the two, because once there's a lot of consumer companies, that market gets very competitive and crowded and it gets even harder. And B2B comes back into favor. So I think we're going through one of those phases now. Although remember, in the end, consumer businesses, especially in the internet era, and then of course the mobile era, are truly amazing at scale. I mean, like you just think today, I mean, not to pick on any giant company, whether it's Apple, you know, you look at their iOS ecosystem and you're talking about over a billion users on it. Facebook normally talks about having billions of active users that's a scale that is really meaningful, both economically and from an impact perspective. And so for me, consumer is always very exciting. I think, you know, the fact that fintech consumer has, you know, people are trying to sift through which businesses are sustainable, which ones aren't, which ones are booming, which ones are not. To me, that's just embracing what the consumer market's all about. You have a competition of business models, different products, different markets to go after. And so, yeah, there's a lot of disruption and a lot of back and forth in competition and consumer, but also the outcomes are tremendously large, right? Like look at the last phases of the boom, you know, a- Airbnb just did their earnings, right? For the last year. And I mean, this is a company that during the pandemic, people were wondering how it was gonna make it through the lack of travel and sort of thing. And just look at the economic results, et cetera. I mean, consumer businesses can get quite large. Obviously LinkedIn was phenomenally successful. LinkedIn was one of the rare stories with great experience for me, of course, because we cheated, we did both. We built a consumer company and then we built a B2B business over it that turned out to be tremendously large. And at this point is most of LinkedIn's revenue. So yeah, these phases come and go. I try not to get, let it bother me. Like I look at Acorns now and the scale that it has, right? You know, millions of paying subscribers, all looking for a product and service to help them with their financial life, get them on a better path. What a wonderful product and service to exist. And, um, I think if Acorns hadn't been so successful, I wouldn't have had the confidence to do Daffy now. Say, hey, if we can do this for saving, why can't we do it for giving?
1: That's a perfect segue. Let's talk about Daffy. That's been your baby for the last three plus years, right? Not quite that long. We raised our
0: seed round from Ribbit at the end of 2020. So it really was very much a pandemic company. So a little over two years. The product went live in the end of 2021. So we just had our first full year out in the
1: market. So you're a a remote first company, maybe... Tell us about the origin stories, why do this, right? Sounds like obviously your past experience led you to Daffy, but uh, you know, guide us a little bit through the company and what you've built so far. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not the typical founder in some
0: ways, but when you've spent some time in venture capital, you learn certain lessons about the quality bar and how good startups have to be to even have a shot at building a venture-class company. And you also you end up realizing that the bar to to form a new company, why can't this exist otherwise, is also very, very high. So you might say that Daffy is a company where I I had that founder itch where I really didn't have any confidence that that someone would make this idea work, that could make this company work if Alejandro and I didn't do it ourselves. But the idea behind Daffy was very simple and very much was an outcome of the pandemic. I mean, I had had the idea in some ways years before. I had this list, even going back to Wealthfront, of all the great financial products that i thought were great products added real value for consumers but hadn't been reinvented yet reimagined and the donor advice fund was on it daffy by the way stands for the donor advice fund for you there's always a problem when you have engineers do the naming so it's just i like the name though it's very simple anyway it's fun but you know I was sitting in 2020 was thinking about these tasks and i had not been able to think about the donor advice funds a great product but it's a niche product that really only the wealthy know about and use, right? It's a product that advisor, financial advisors, accountants tend to recommend to the wealthy as a way to help control their taxes and kind of spread their giving out, right? If you have a big year, you know, like LinkedIn goes public, all of a sudden there's financial advisors and accountants everywhere recommending to people, hey, you can help if you, instead of selling all that stock, you donate some of it. Um, you can save a lot on your taxes. And then, of course, the answer is, well, I don't know who I would donate all this money to. And they say, well, you don't have to worry about that. Put it in a donor advised fund. It's invested tax free. And then anytime you want to donate money to a charity, you have the money there growing. growing. Then you can put many years aside up front. Right? It's almost like super funding a 529 plan for college savings or something like this. And so it's a great product. It adds a lot of value. And I think it solves a fundamental problem for people. But it's not a business building just that, like a, just a small niche product for wealthy people, the whole industry has evolved into concierge service, you know, high AUM fees. And so I hadn't figured out how to turn that into something bigger. I mean, there's 60 to 70 million households in the U.S. every year who give to charity. It's almost half a trillion a year. That's over 2% of GDP. I mean, I, there are huge... Agriculture is about 1% of GDP. I mean, like it's amazing how big giving is, and yet there's no reinvention here, no great technology solution. And so over that summer, with Alejandro and I, we had a passion for giving. Why can't we build something that helps people give the same way we've built applications that help people save and invest? And then it hit us, that simple idea. You know, my kids go to the school. I have four kids. I'm varying ages. But they all went to the school where, you know, every Friday, the kids bring in their spare change. They put in a little piggy bank. All right? Not like this piggy bank right here. They put it in the piggy bank. And then every quarter the class votes on which local nonprofit to give the money to. And it's such a wonderful way to teach the kids about putting money aside towards a goal and and giving you know, those less fortunate than themselves. And I was thinking like, why don't grown ups do this? Why don't adults do this? And then it hit me, they do. Rich people do. Wealthy people do. And so we built a product that made it that easy to just say, Hey, how much do you want to give to charity this year? A few hundred dollars? Few thousand dollars. Everyone's different, but you have this simple app. You say, "Well, do you want to put money aside every week, every month, every quarter?" And then this idea got going of like, "Why can't we build an application that makes it easy for people to put money aside for charity so that when they want to give, they can?" And that's really where Daffy came from, was that simple idea. And it turns out there's a lot of academic research that supports it. Just like other financial goals, it's basic behavioral finance. It turns out if you set a goal for your giving. Put money aside automatically, you'll give about 32% more and otherwise. And that's a big number. That's That could be $100 billion a year in the U.S. alone. This reminds
1: me a lot to, I and mean, you kind of alluded to this, for example, alternative investing, right? It's reserved for the very wealthy, and now some fintechs are providing access to alternative investing assets. Sounds like the market, the 2% of US GDP that you were just describing... That's probably, you know, like a huge hockey stick, that most of it is coming from the ultra wealthy, but you're trying to bring that to the rest of the market.
0: You know, it's, I think there's a misperception there. It really depends when you look at the market by dollars or by people. Like I said, the number of Americans who give it 60 to 70 million, actually a lot of the research shows that proportionally, actually the less wealthy give more and give more frequently. I think we're, we're so fascinated these days. Everyone wants to talk about billionaires and what they're doing. Everyone forgets that there actually aren't that many of them and that most people are not billionaires. And so if you look at the numbers, yeah, that, you know, that $476 billion that's given to charity like in, in 2020, about 300, 331 billion of it maybe comes from individuals. Definitely skews, like all money things skews towards the wealthy. But what I really fixated on to me was that this is not something that only the wealthy do. That 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 basic idea that those 60 to 70 million American households that give to charity every year. You know, most people they they give to their church or their synagogue, they give to their kids school, they give to their alma mater, maybe there's a cause they believe in that they support, maybe they volunteer somewhere. It's not that everyone gives so much money, but people really do care about this as a part of their lives. Most of us were raised by someone a teacher uh A parent, you know, someone who inspired us, but taught us that actually part of living a good life is to recognize that your problems, your issues, your financial, everything about you, like, is just a small part of this world, of your society, and that it is important to give back, right? And some people believe you give back when you're doing well. Some people believe you give back no matter what's going on, but. You know, when I did the original user research, I'm a big, you know, I come from a product background, right? You know, design background. You know, the first thing I did with this idea was I went to talk to dozens of people across the country to try and see how other people think about giving. And it was very interesting. Most people believe that giving is something that you should do with very few exceptions. They don't agree on the amount. Oh my goodness, like you ask 25 people how much you should be giving to charity every year. You're lucky if you only get 25 answers. But the one thing that was in common that really hit me was that if you asked people how much they thought they should give to charity every year but then asked them how much they actually gave to charity in the past year there was a big gap and people were not happy with that it wasn't just guilt it was almost i don't want to say it was existential but it, it, there was there was a it was almost like a conflict with their sense of identity they believe they were a good person they believe that they give they believe in giving they just don't have time for it It's like a lot of things. I mean, how many of us would save for retirement if that wasn't automated? I mean, you talked about Wealthfront before. A lot of the innovation in fintech, the place where it adds a lot of value is actually just trusting software and systems to do the things that none of us have the patience or consistency to do reliably. You know, doing a lot of money tasks are not, they're marathons. They're not sprints. It's not one smart decision it's a lot of little things you have to do over time. And the great thing about software is it doesn't get bored. <laughs> it runs 24-7. It, it will do those little things. It'll reinvest your dividends. It'll move money aside for you. And so a lot of the idea behind Daffy was we could take all that behavioral finance, all that automation, and what if we didn't help people hit this goal, which isn't just a financial goal for themselves, but is something very fundamental to how they want to live their lives. And so I, I love that idea. I love the idea of building software products that get to a little bit closer to what people really want to do with their lives, adding real value to them. And giving is has the added benefit that it's not just a benefit for the person who gives. Obviously, there's also benefits for the recipients on the other end and the organizations and their missions and what they support. So my co-founder and I jumped in with both feet to, to do this. We were able to raise money during the pandemic. We raised our Series A at the beginning of 2022, which now looks like great timing. And I'm very excited to have this team here just building, constantly innovating, looking for new ways to help people give. So, let me
1: ask you this internally at Daffy, how do you measure success? What are some of the key KPIs that you're tracking? You
0: know, the most important KPI to us right now, I mean, it moves. And so, I tend to be very simple. You know, the great thing about working in venture capital or being an investor, et cetera, is you start realizing the patterns that company goes through. Building a public, quality company, building a multi-billion dollar company at scale, it's just too much to try and do it once. It won't work. You can't solve that problem at once. Venture capital is phased for a reason, right? You go through different phases. And so my approach at Daffy and with the team is very much, you know, I, I tend to break things into kind of what's the next race for, right? Internally, I write a strategy document for the whole team that I share twice a year, which is what did we learn in the last six months? What does that tell us about what we're going to prioritize in the next 12 you know, what's that next move? And it does move, right? So in the beginning, you raised my, mind, I mean, we had to build the team and a lot of it's oriented just towards shipping the MVP, I Man, what is the MVP, right? And all those different features, what's in, what's out, what can you do? What's easy? What's hard? We had to do a lot of that in 2021. I mean, our first hire that was not Alejandro or myself came in in January of 2021 and we shipped our MVP to market in September of 2021 with a team of about a dozen, which was amazing to do. And you're figuring out how to work together. You're building basic infrastructure, systems, you know, all those pieces. Once we launched the product, 2022 for us was very much about making sure that we had a platform that we could run. We had all the regulatory approvals, but we had to do all those pieces. We had to operate the business and the product. And most importantly for me, we had to make sure that we had a product that people didn't just use, that they love, right? So what metrics do you look at? Well, of course, you can look at objective metrics like churn rates right? You can look at referrals, et cetera. You can look at conversion rates. For me, the churn rate was very important. It was like, did we build a product that people stuck with? Did we hit? Because that was core to the mission, right? For us, it's not just about building the business. It, it has to also be about building something sustainable. And I'd put a lot of thought into everything from the business model to the product to what you know, the strategy. But it, none of it works if you don't build a product that people love and that they'll actually stick with. So if 2022 for us was, can we operate a service where when people do try this, you know that one in a million out there actually heard of us and tried out. Do they like it? Do they stay, stick with it? Does it help them? Do they actually use it? D- does it actually help them give more? Do they feel good about the giving? And so that was last year. We had a very good year last year. Felt very good about it. So this year, you know, the shift for the team. This year, we believe we have a great product and service. We just want to get more people into it. So a lot of the focus on the team is growth and distribution and partnership and finding new ways for people to discover that there is a system out there that will help them be the generous person they want to be.
1: You've talked several times about the importance of your team and working with great people. What have you learned specifically on on recruiting and and finding great folks? Because at the end of the day, you're also competing for talent. The best talent in down markets and in bull markets, they're always going to be attractive to the best companies. So you know, maybe share a little bit of your insights of just recruiting for the best talent.
0: Yeah. And I think that term gets thrown around the best talent, great talent. By what measure are we talking about? Right. You know, there are incredibly talented specialists out there who are just some of the best of the world at something. But at a startup, that's rarely what you're looking for and fit, right? Like there are too many things to do. You don't have the luxury of specialists and teams everywhere. And so that old expression of, of, you know, are you looking for a general athlete, you know, who can pick up and do different things? Are you looking for someone who's just amazing? You know, they're a designated hitter, but when they connect, they really crank the ball. um You don't know. But I think for startups in, in general, it rewards having flexibility. You don't know what you don't know about the business. You have big parts of it wrong. You're constantly iterating and learning. For me, the most important part for re- recruiting is actually the fit, right? So, like Reid Hoffman, I, I tend to believe that careers are mostly built on what you could call tours of duty, that people don't plan out their whole lives, but they make this decision for the next few years, what am I going to spend my professional life on? What's it going to do for me and what I'm going to have to show for it afterwards? And so I think that joining a venture back startup is not a very common fit for people. I think there's a lot of people who don't like the risk involved. They're nervous about it. They want some semblance of a hierarchy. They don't like the lack of liquidity. They're worried about taking that bet on the equity. There's all these reasons why people, the management, you know, who knows that it's just, it's, it's a different set of risks. And I I think a different type of risk tolerance. The type of good people you want, I think in tech in general, small or big is really very similar on a few attributes. In general, you want people who have a lot of intellectual horsepower, who are smart. You want people who are ambitious, who work and actually excited about doing the next big thing, about doing even more. They want to learn, they want to grow, they they want more responsibility. It's the, um, you know, it's the player who says, you know, give me the ball coach, right? There's a little bit of, you know, taking it and they have to be trustworthy, right? You know, you're moving too quickly. You have to be working with people. You, you can't solve it through micromanagement. You can't solve the problem through some sort of Multiple layers of verification. You have to hire people who are good people who will do the right thing. I I wrote a post about this. I gave a speech years ago at a graduation about the type of people who paint behind the refrigerator. But I'm a big believer in that trustworthiness aspect as well. FinTech is even more important, as it turns out, when you're dealing with people's money. But um, that aptitude. So for me, with recruiting, what you're really looking for are people who are at the stage in their career where not only they can take the risk on a startup, but they want to, it's a fit for what they want to do. Maybe they just want the experience. Maybe they're going to do their own startup someday. Maybe they just haven't done it before and they want to give it a try. But you have to find the right fit for people. The The bad news for startups is, like I said, is that fit is very rare. They have to be, they have to want, and by the way, all that qualification, then they have to work for you. You have to want to work at your company and they have to authentically care about the mission. It's a very tough set. The only good news for startups turns out to be is that you don't need that many people. Right? And so, you know big companies, you know if you are well, not these days, not this last few months, but you know if you're a big company, if you have a hundred thousand people, you're going to grow ten percent, that's ten thousand people to hire. That's a hard problem. I mean, that's what we supported at LinkedIn that's building out a, almost a sales force, except the sales force are made up of recruiters, right to go find people and sell them on your company and bring them in at a startup though, it's very specific, right? you have very few. People that you can afford on your team, just economically, and so finding that right fit. So for me, most of my interview cycle, like at Daffy, when I talk to candidates, some people are drawn to Daffy because of me. Some are drawn because of the mission. Some are drawn because of the product. Or they saw it. Or they they're excited about what we're doing. Maybe they're just excited that we have funding in this current environment, and that's good. It's always good to have that proactive interest. But it turns out for me, a lot of my interview cycle is authentically understanding why it would be a good fit for that person to work at this company now in their careers? Because my assumption is they won't be with us forever. They might be, but I want to make sure that their excitement, their goals align with the goals of what we need as a company. Because that way you can run really fast. I mean, we have a very small team right now, but we run very quickly. We've been able in a year or two to roll out features that this entire industry, which has been around four decades, I mean, almost a century, there have been donor advised funds. And some new companies coming in and launching new features regularly that the industry hasn't tackled in the last decade or two of internet development or mobile development. I mean, when we launched at the App Store, we were the first fully functioning donor advice fund in the App Store in the year 2021. So, but yeah, it all comes down to people, in my view, and finding that fit and those right people. And then if that wasn't hard enough, how do you get them to work together? How do you get a group of people with different backgrounds and experience levels and specialties to actually come together and design a single product and experience that people don't just use but love. It's very hard people problems.
1: And having seen, I think you were mentioning offline four tech downturns. But also, you know, you've worked through most of these. You have invested in companies that have survived and overcome, or also some that haven't. You know, what's your take on the current tech downturn that they were experiencing, you know, what would you say also to earlier entrepreneurs, you know, the ones who are just getting started or maybe at your similar level, but they're doing it for the first time?
0: Well, I'll warn everyone in advance. I do have in my Twitter profile, I bias optimistic. It's very hard. Everyone has a different level, but it turns out if you leave me alone for a few minutes or a few hours, I'm probably going to come out feeling positive about what's possible, right? You know, there's a Is that glass half full or half empty? I'm a little bit more of like, you know, we could fill that glass. Like, it doesn't have to be half full. We could actually put more water in it. We get more glasses anyway. But no, you know, so I look at the current market. It does help to have it have been through some other downturns. It gives you perspective, right? When I started at college and I was thinking about what to major and I went to computer science, I mean, the early nineties, people forget that recession, but actually that was really hard on the tech sector. Hewlett Packard, the granddaddy of Silicon Valley right? The original kind of founder-driven build this product company that, you know, the Hewlett-Packard way, like the HP way um, was a pillar of what Silicon Valley was built off of. They did layoffs in the early 90s. And if Hewlett-Packard did layoffs, then no one was safe. any big company could do it. And of course, we had the bubble burst in 2000. Of course, we had the great recession, financial crisis, 2008, 2009. And so it does give you perspective. I will say that this particular cycle feels somewhere in between the early 90s because that was a rising rate environment was a little bit of what was going on. But some people have compared it to the bubble bursting. I mean, I think a lot of people have covered all the issues founders have to deal with. And boy, it's a lot. This fundraising environment, recruiting, all these that go to market. It's harder to get customers. It's harder. The channels are more expensive. They're not as effective. There's so many problems that founders have to deal with. I tend to talk to founders a little bit about remembering what how this game is going to play out because it is hard to get through, but there's a lot of opportunity on the other side. Let's go through it. You talked about recruiting. There's a lot of people now who, whether they were laid off or not, no longer believe that big companies are safe. no longer think that their job is automatic, that stock always goes up and to the right, you know that those RSUs will always have value. There's a lot of people now who are realizing that building a quality company career or a job may involve moving around and learning new things. There are startups right now that are failing and struggling, but are filled with good people who actually just want a mission and a great product and now probably have learned a little bit more about what it takes to make a startup successful. And so as long as they haven't gone fully cynical about it, might be great candidates for your startup. Or you could look at just, you know, the basic macro conditioning competition. You no longer have venture capitalists funding 12 different companies going after the same idea or 20, right? Your reward for launching a product is no longer. All those big companies doing layoffs, they're cutting a lot of their innovative new product divisions. They're pulling back on speculative investments that might not pay off for three to five years. Guess what that means for your startup in three to five years? We're going to be reading about some hot startup in 2027 which is worth billions of dollars for this product and service. And there'll be stories about how Google cut that project in 2022, or Facebook did, or Microsoft did, or Apple did. So, you know, I'm a big believer that the seeds of the next boom are planted during the downturns. And I see that all around me. By the way, in my angel portfolio, I see the same thing. All these companies, these startups, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, there are some that are struggling, no doubt. Market moves around. I mean, huge, not their fault, right? What's going on in real estate right now is a huge gyration. You have to pivot. You have to rethink what you've been doing. A lot of the lessons from the previous couple of years don't apply. But there are also subsectors where business is booming and growing. Obviously, everyone's talking about AI right now, but there's a lot of different businesses and services in fintech and elsewhere where people are really seeing a lot of customer pull for solutions, seeing a lot of value in what they're building. And so um, the hard part for founders is just pushing through and knowing that right now the game is a little different. What was easy last year might be hard now, but some of the things that were hard previously may have gotten easier. And so you work with what you have, but your job is to shepherd your company to that next phase. You know whatever those milestones are. You know if they're growth milestones, revenue. The one thing that's in common right now, of course is that everyone is taking a sharp look at their core economics. I mean, as an angel investor, this is something that I always end up looking at. I always end up looking at a number of things when I'm looking at investing at the seed stage. But one of them is I have to really believe that the core economics are actually going to be scalable and supportable over time, sustainable. Um, And that usually derives from the value you're creating for customers, which is a question, frankly, that too many founders don't ask themselves that hard question. Where are they really creating economic value? Right. Because I'm old fashioned when it comes to building a business. It's you create value for your customers, and that gives you the right and the privilege to take a small part of that value created for yourself, for your organization, to help continue and sustain that organization to keep creating value. But it all starts with creating customer value if you want to build something sustainable, in my book.
1: And then before I let you go, so you mentioned that you teach the Stanford. Course personal finance for engineers. What is the biggest lesson that you teach in that class?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. It's a little bit old-fashioned. I probably get it from my grandmother. But you know, when you operate an environment with so many brilliant people, high IQ, good schools backgrounds, etc., or maybe they didn't go to good schools. They're just brilliant. pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. But when you work with brilliant people, you start realizing that one of the problems that brilliant people have is finding a little bit of humility around subjects where they're not the experts. And a lot of my class is actually talking about the fact that doing well with money, having a successful financial life can be more about emotions, can be more about systems that you have in place, more about admitting the things that you don't know or that you're just not spending time on. Right. And it's very hard to convince a lot of brilliant people, whether they're engineers or MBAs or whatever the walk of life, that, that actually that money isn't what they're focused on. You know, lawyers might be focused on being great lawyers, doctors focused on being great doctors, engineers, great engineers, founders, great founders, getting people to realize that, you know, personal finances is its own area. It's not academically difficult, but that doesn't matter if you weren't taught it, right? Most of the students in my class have gone to some of the best schools, you know, secondary schools, you know, backgrounds, et cetera, some of the most brilliant people in the world who will likely be very successful, but they've never had a class in personal finance. They don't know the basics. And so a little bit of humility and understanding that very basic systems, being honest about your emotions around money, understanding how the math works for solving problems, financial problems over time, and actually thinking clearly about what your financial goals are. I mean, those are probably, believe it or not, the biggest themes in the class, now, the detail in the class for me, I'm, I'm very proud of. You know, when we talk about compensation, we have a whole seminar on compensation. I bring in actual offers. This is what an offer from Facebook or Google looks like this year. This is what an offer from a startup looks like. This is what an offer from a investment bank or a consulting firm looks like. This is what an offer might look like from a Fortune 500 company. You real data, real money. I try to create a safe environment where people can talk about their questions about money and debate, and kind of learn how the math works. But the truth is, the more you go through personal finance, the more you go through basics on money, you realize that there's no absolute right and wrong answers. There's more just systems and people finding out what fits their lives, and more importantly, their values about how they want to live their life. So it might sound funny for a class about money in an engineering school, but a lot of the class is actually about
1: humanity. It's about emotions. So Adam, very, very excited stuff. You've inspired me. I'm going to Go and download and start using Daffy after this call. I love what you're building. And also, thanks for stopping by the show. It no doubt is going to inspire a lot of people out there.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And I, to anyone listening, of course, we love your early feedback. These early members in our community mean so much. But if you want, we will provide, a, I'm happy to provide an invitation. Like we actually give new members who are invited an extra $25 to give to the charity of their choice once you fund the account. And so if anyone wants that, I'm happy to provide you um, with an invite link for your listeners
1: just to help them out. We'll put it at the very top of the newsletter for 52,000 subscribers to try it out. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Listen, our whole
0: mission is to help people be more generous more often. Uh, I think that most people, when they try the app, what they discover is, in some ways, it's very simple. And in some ways, it's very profound having this app that helps you think about how much do you want to give to charity every year and then automating it to make it very easy to do. And so um, we're proud of it, but certainly excited to get early feedback. So any of the listeners who will try it out and send me an email, I'll appreciate it. Amazing. Thank you, Adam.
1: Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Adam, CEO of Daffy if you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.